Amen. Please take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Let's start right away at the first verse and read up through verse 9. The word of the Lord says to us, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to be restored again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own, own harm and holding Him up in contempt. For lamb that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to its reading. You can be seated and children who are headed to children's church can be dismissed. This text that we just read is a challenging text. In fact, there's an article that I read this week on the Gospel Coalition website. The heading is the 25 most challenging passages of Scripture. Due to the fact that this text seems to imply that the truly redeemed person can lose their salvation, this text is number 23 on a list of 25 according to that author in terms of its challenge that it represents to the reader. I have no delusion that in the next 45 minutes I will solve all the difficulties of this text. I do not think that heretofore everything spoken or written about this text will be predicated on what I say in these moments. However, don't walk out well, pastor said he's maybe not going to solve this, so I can go to early lunch. However, pastorally, I do have a deep conviction to guard us from two grievous errors with this text. The first unbiblical error we could commit in coming to this hard text is that we come to an erroneous conclusion that there is some sort of contradiction in Scripture. Sometimes we're taught that we may lose our salvation, and other times we're taught that we must lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, because that is certainly our destination. We might think, well, which is it? Is there a contradiction in Scripture? The other error is to dismiss this text, because we say, well, I know the other places that promise my security with eternal life, and if this text seems to somehow rub against that text, then I'll just kind of gloss over this hard one. I think the middle of the road 
is to see this text a little bit like a John the Baptist to us. John the Baptist comes and preaches as preparation for Christ's first coming. Texts such as this one prepare us for Christ's second coming. John the Baptist, in preparation for the first coming, says this in Matthew chapter 3. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to baptism, he said, Who warned you? Who warned you to flee the wrath that's coming? You must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not for a moment presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise of these stones, children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. As this text ministers to us the way John the Baptist ministered to them, there is here a grave concern for presuming upon our exposure to religion or to the truth of the gospel while remaining dull in hearing the full truth about the whole Christ. There's a grave concern that this text ministers to us in preparation for the second coming of Christ. That we would presume that our proximity today, look how close we are to religion and Look at what we've sung true of God and listen to the word of God and affirming with regular head nodding the word of God. Yet remain dull in hearing about the whole Christ. This series that we're walking through, this is the third part. This series is titled Concerns, Consequences, and Confidence. And we are in the middle section consequences. There are, as I've regularly told you, five warning texts in Hebrews. This is the third of five. It's the heaviest, the longest of the five. In this one, it's bookended with what we've seen over the last two weeks from chapter 5 and verse 11. And it's also bookended at the back end of the warning. There is a word of confidence. But what we're handling today is this concern. There is, I'm sorry, the consequence. We have already handled the concern. And that is that the people are dull of hearing the word of truth. Unable to grasp what the author wants to give them because all they receive is elementary doctrine of Christ. They are commanded in verses 1 through 3 to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. To grow on past the elementary doctrine of Christ. The author gives us a description of what he means. Because as we studied last week, that statement, elementary doctrine of Christ seems unbecoming. The doctrine of Christ. How can it be called elementary? 
he describes what he means by elementary doctrine of Christ. You remember the three pairs we looked at last week? Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washing and laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. These are three things, it seems, <clears throat> a group of elementary or dull of hearing people had embraced. They were glad to receive this elementary conclusion about Christ. However, as we studied last time, nothing in those three pairs of elementary doctrine is exclusively Christian. They could come to that conclusion and share in conclusions with their former Jewish friends, their life in Judaism. They had found a spot that was safe enough everyone could just agree on. That is what the author calls elementary doctrine of Christ. They were enjoying the shared common values like love your neighbor, take care of the poor, forgive each other, bear with one another in your weaknesses. The elementary, as we saw last time, is this, the ABCs of doctrine. The abstaining from biblical controversy. To settle down at agreeable points. Sometimes people will ask, why, if there is one truth, one gospel, one spirit, one baptism, one Lord, then why are there churches in our relatively small community that believe similar things that we do, yet are various churches all over town? There, there are a couple practical reasons for that. I would advocate that in the care of people, it is hard to do at 10,000 or 15,000 people. But I think the question that one leads to is what about a parachurch organization? You know, a parachurch organization? It's those organizations in town, which we have great appreciation for, that come alongside churches. The Hope Pregnancy Center, Bridge Street Mission. Uh, Faith Christian Academy Forest Springs Camp and Conference Center As soon as we ask the question Why are there so many churches Should we ask ourselves Why are there so few Christian camps Hmm It feels like I'm about to meddle And so I'll leave you with the question unanswered Andrew Murray wrote this about the potential state of neutrality. He said, it's often said there is no safe place but in advancing. To stand still is to go backward. To cease effort is to lose ground. To slacken the pace before the goal is reached is to lose the race. We might be tempted to say, so what if we just talk about the things we all agree about? What if we just stay comfortably in the elementary? Wouldn't it mean that we could all assemble together? Wouldn't it mean that we could all have one big, happy community? 
Would that be good? Keep in mind that the concern of which I'm reviewing precedes a consequence. So the answer to the inclination, isn't it good to just not get into stuff that's too divisive? Well, if the author means to lead us through a progression of thought, he would seem to indicate that the consequence for such things is grave, even eternal. The repeated theme of the warnings that come to us from Hebrews is that the reader must press on and not repeat what was the frequent pattern of Hebrew people before them. Press on. Don't turn back. Now the way he makes that plea is what we just sang. There is a Christ better than Adam, better than Moses, better than David. Where would you go for something better than Christ? There's nothing better. The warning is don't go back, but don't stay still. Press forward. This text unfolds in three highlights. Look with me at the text. In verses 4 through 6, the first half of verse 6, there's a description of a certain impossibility. He calls it impossible. In the second half of verse 6, there's the reason why it's impossible, and he summarizes that as a repeating repentance, to just repent over and over. And then in verse 7 and 8, we get what I think is a very helpful example from nature. I think it's very helpful. So, what we're going to do is study the impossibility, the repeated repentance, and then the example from nature. Before we do that, as much as any other time, we must pray and ask for the Spirit's help. Father, we do call on you for aid for illumination of your word. We are thankful, Father, that God the Spirit dwells among us and illuminates truth to us. The truth must be illuminated of the whole Christ. And we are grateful that our God the Spirit does not speak of himself, but testifies to the Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see what is to be seen. But then, Father, joy and delight to go and do according to the instruction. In Jesus' name, amen. The first point that I want to set our attention on is in verses 4 through 6. It's the impossibility of restoring the hard heart. The impossibility of restoring the hard heart. If I could summarize verses 4 through 6, I would say it this way. It is impossible, according to chapter, or verse 4, the first part of the verse, it is impossible to be so close to the truth and then fall away and later come back. It's impossible. It's impossible to be close and then fall away. Now, most of the time I'm going to spend 
teaching this morning is going to be based on the identity of who we're talking about. I think that's the, the imperative question. Who are these people that can't possibly come back later? Because if it is the true adopted people of God, then it raises a lot of concerns for some other texts. So we have to mind the truth of their identity. Were these saved, ransomed people who fell away? Well, here's what the text does say. They are enlightened people. He describes what it means that they had been enlightened. They had tasted the heavenly gift. They had shared in the Holy Spirit. That's a tough one. They had tasted the goodness of the word as well as the power of the age to come. Those sound like reconciled, propitiated for adopted children of God, for sure. However, it doesn't use any of those words. It doesn't talk about them as adopted or ransomed, reconciled, saved, covenant. But it does use some language that's pretty powerful. In fact, one of the great contributors to church history is a minister by the name of John Wesley, a great Methodist leader. By the way, do you know if the Methodist church was the largest institution the largest organization in America in the 1800s. There was no, the, the railroad industry was not as large as the Methodist church in the 1800s. John Wesley, one of its founders and leaders, wrote this regarding Hebrews 6. Must not every unprejudiced person see the expressions here are so strong and clear that they cannot be understood of any but true believers. On this authority, I believe a saint may fall away, that one who is holy or righteous in the judgment of God himself may nevertheless so fall from God as to perish everlasting. Are hmm. The enlightened, saved, adopted, ransomed, reconciled, propitiated children of God. To answer that question, we have to be good Bible students. And in being a good Bible student, there are two keys you have to keep in mind. First key is the clearest. Second key is the nearest. Okay, so they're meant to rhyme so that you'll remember them. The first key is what is clearest. The second key is what is nearest. So if we're going to answer hard questions from a difficult test like this one, let me please model for you a, a good pattern of Bible study. The first pattern is if I'm dealing with a tough text that seems to present a contradiction in Scripture then I should reasonably turn to the other passages in Scripture that speak of that issue clearest. Clearest. So here's what I mean. Since God is the ultimate author of the Bible, there can be no basic inconsistencies in Scripture. We know that. That's the pastoral warning. We know that. This means that when faced with a difficult text like this, 
We have to interpret the difficulties, the foggiest, through the lens of the clearest. So, these texts you probably know well. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them from my Father's hand. A clear verse about security. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives to me and come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I will not lose them, but I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus emphasizes our security. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I am sure that nothing in all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So those are clear texts that remind us of our security. We should handle Hebrews 6 in light of those texts, not independent from them, but also not manipulated by them. So, that's the clearest. Now here's a question. Whoever the author is of Hebrews, he wrote some things about security. Those are the nearest context. So we just looked at the clearest. Let's look at the nearest. Would you join me in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17? So then, God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unsearchable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, and that it's impossible for God to lie, he who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. We who have fled to refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The author of Hebrews, in the nearest context, just a few verses later, implores the reader to have strong encouragement and hold fast to our hope. Both what is clearest and what is near us, nearest tells us that this text is not undermining our conclusions about security. We keep this text in the context of an epistle written to show that the old covenant pointed to and is fulfilled by Christ. That's what the book's about. Look to Christ, look to Christ, look to Christ. And I would say when confronted with a challenge like this one, it is impossible for those who have been close to and fallen away to ever get back. I would say the answer to that difficulty is still look to Christ. The reader's familiarity with the Old Testament and the audience's familiarity with the Old Testament has led this author to keep jumping back and saying, remember when that happened in the Old Testament? Remember when that happened in the Exodus? Remember when that happened in the wilderness? This text is not different. Let's answer a possible. Do I get to say possibles? I hope so. I hope you give me the latitude to come to a text like this 
and say there is a possibility it means this. Because if I don't have that latitude, we're all in real trouble. This text, those enlightened, might be drawing the reader's mind back to the wilderness, wandering for two years from deliverance to promise. And what was their experience like? In what way were those folks enlightened? <laughs> well, I didn't have to think very hard to think about their enlightenment. They were led by a pillar of light. How had they tasted the heavenly gift? Come on. That one's easy too. It fell every day from heaven. How had they shared in the Holy Spirit? Hmm. Well, Pastor Will referenced it in his prayer and talked about us being built up a holy temple to the Lord. We are the abiding place of the Lord. That is made possible by the Holy Spirit. I would say we should understand that they received the benefit of having the meeting place of God in the tabernacle. In what way had they tasted the word of God? You remember when they're at the base of the mountain and they're terrified? And they said, okay, enough. You listen to God and then come tell us what he said. But we can't take it. We're terrified of this revelation. Had they tasted the word of God? Had they witnessed the power on this earth that belonged to the age to come? Did the people in the Exodus ever see anything amazing? <laughs> we sang about that. See the waters divided? The plagues in Egypt? Is it possible, if I may suggest, that the enlightened, that he's warning them, were people who had experienced all of that and for a season nodded? And then the hardest day came. The temptation to forfeit, to turn back. And then their identity was exposed. Now, let me make a contemporary application of that. Are you the people who are enlightened? Am I enlightened? According to this view that the author is calling us to see our nearness, nearness, you remember when the young lawyer met Jesus on the steps of the temple? And he has this question. He's going to ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers it. Love God, love your neighbor. And the young lawyer goes, that's a good answer. And Jesus says, I can tell that you're not far outside the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> what does it mean to not be far outside? Like, are you on the doormat? Are you on the step, the porch, driveway? What does it mean to not be far? Well, it means you're close, but you're not in. And that's what Jesus says to the young lawyer. Is that what's being said here about the enlightened? Well, if their enlightenment meant they were led by light 
the direction of God? Let me, let me propose some ways in which we are enlightened. The term to be enlightened is used as early as the second century to refer to baptism. That was a surprise to me. It's used as early as the second century, so within a few decades of this writing, it comes up in context of baptism. The tasting of heavenly gifts. We don't get to do it today, but we did last week and we will next week. We take communion. We taste of the heavenly gift. We share in the Holy Spirit. Uh, I talked about this a few weeks ago. The laying on of hands. We anoint people for tasks. The tasting of goodness of the Word of God. It's happening now in the preaching of the Word of God. The power of the age to come. We see the transforming power of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. We see it happening now. I have more confidence that the kingdom is full of power and authority because I see friends and neighbors being radically transformed by the message of Jesus Christ. I'm seeing the power of the gospel. This could apply to those who had come to assemblies like this one. Maybe been baptized, witnessed baptism, participated in communion, heard the preaching, saw the transforming power of the gospel, and fell away. How could the wilderness experience or our church experience be any part of falling away. What I'm going to say next, I have a deep burden for pastorally, okay? This matters a great deal to me. I'll introduce it this way. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. It's the same sun. Wax is melted. Clay is hardened. But it's the same sun. I'm concerned that it is very possible that we would give each other or our spouse or our children or our coworker or our neighbor a sort of immunization to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what an immunization is, right? With most vaccines, immunizations, you go and you get a small controlled dose of the virus. Your body builds up antibody and immunity to that virus? You know, you know anything about vaccines and viruses? <laughs> you are the world's professionals on the topic. That's an immunization. Listen, it's impossible for us to give each other just enough controlled dose of the gospel to actually produce immunity to the gospel. 
I'm torn between wanting to know if it makes sense and wanting to illustrate it. But the illustrations are difficult. There are good things that we do out of a fervor for the kingdom of Jesus Christ that apart from the transforming work of the Spirit actually hardened clay. Here's one example. In our home, it is really regular that we will pray and thank the Lord before we eat a meal. Certainly not a a Christian requirement. It is something we do in our home. Not all the time. Not all the time. But we do it pretty regularly. And maybe, maybe you can relate to this experience. You'll have a young child who will maybe say, No, nah, I don't want to. I don't want to pray. I don't want to stand still. I, I want to run around. You guys pray. Call me when my meat is cut. And, and I could say, No, we're a Christian family. Sit down. Fold your hands. Close your eyes. Bow your head. That's what we do because we're Christian. Oh, okay. Sits down. Folds his hands. Bows his Closes his eyes. Gets through the prayer and goes, Good. Now we're all Christian. Hmm. Nope. Not at all. We're a Christian family. We go to Sunday school. Which, by the way, I never ask my kids if they want to go to Sunday school. <laughs> we're a Christian family. We, whatever it is. Oh, oh, we're a Christian family. And, and I get to enjoy this proximity. I mean, we had all kinds of things that were good, healthy habits. Reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible. I was homeschooled most of my life, went to Christian school a little bit. Went off to Christian college. That sun hardened some clay. I know that those things, like praying with your kids, having them learn the Bible, memorize the Bible... You say, wait, wait, Pastor, are you warning us to avoid those things? No. I'm telling you, just like the entire book of Hebrews, the answer to the problem is still going to be Christ. Because all the religion you could inject into yourself or your children does nothing but harden their heart apart from the risen Christ. So your children and your spouse and your neighbor and your coworker needs a radical dose, a full transforming filling up of Jesus Christ, not a little Western American Christian ease. What's the point? Like we saw back in chapters three and four of Hebrews, the great majority of those who left Egypt disbelieve the promise of God and don't enter into promise. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, he's giving his sermon on the mount, the conclusion of his sermon, the, the application at the end is, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So not everyone who says, oh yeah, yeah, I learned this in church. Not everyone who says that gets into heaven, but the one who does the not still, but moving forward. 
On that day, there will be a lot of people, a lot of people who are going to come and say to Jesus, you're my master. You are all in all. We did all sorts of great things. We prophesied, we cast out demons, did many other works in your name. And then Jesus, the righteous judge, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Impossible. Impossible. Without the transforming work of Jesus Christ, it is impossible for those who have been around religion, have nodded in affirmation, shown their true colors and fallen away to be restored. Why? Second point. Repeating repentance and the one-time crucifixion of Christ. This is our second point. If the first one was the impossibility, what exactly is impossible? Verse 6, the second half of the verse. To restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. That's the reason it's impossible to treat the kingdom like some revolving door. In one day, out the next. Back in one day, out the next. Back in one day, out the next. How do these people fall away? They fall away by ultimately, eventually, doing exactly what the Israelites did in the desert. They had believed and believed and believed and believed and believed and believed and then they didn't believe. You remember when we stressed that point? As long as it's called today, edify each other. Call each other to growing faith in God. As long as it's called today because someday it's going to be called tomorrow and it'll be too late. For them, they believed. Right up to their toes are at the border of the land of promise and then under trial, under duress, under tribulation, they decide we don't believe. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Restoring, a verb in the errorist tense, means it has completed past action. In the case of the Hebrew Christians, apostasy is to go back into Judaism... And therefore, it is a total denial of the necessity of the Christ, Jesus. It is the danger they're living in and saying, wow, we're, we're right here. We're close. We got a lot of familiarity over here with our former Jewishness. But we say Christian things like this over here. And the writer knows you are one day away from saying, maybe, maybe we don't need Jesus. Maybe we need rituals, and maybe we need uh, resurrection from the dead, and to go back into Judaism. We see why it's important to restore such a person. I'm sorry, why it's impossible to restore such a person. Verse 6. Because they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God. To their own harm, they are holding Jesus in contempt. It is to say, well, we're all religious here. Do we really need the full Christ? The people described here are not able to go back again. Because of the hardening effect of apostasy. 
God had offered himself graciously to save all those who truly repent. But we can read from Scripture and we can see in our own experiences that it is possible for a human being to arrive at a state of heart and life where they had once believed and have now betrayed that belief in a way that is absolute. Repeating repentance and the one-time crucifixion of Christ is the impossibility. Number three, our third point. Uh, before I get into that, I have a note here. What is the difference between Peter and Judas? When we talk about the impossibility, what is the difference between Peter and Judas? Well, let me answer it this way as I read it this week. One failed in his fidelity to Christ, as Christians will often do. The other repudiated Christ. One did not live up to the cross. The other despised the cross. So I, I want to comfort you with that truth. Like Peter, Christians will make amazing blunders and stumbles, but not repudiate the cross. You will live in a way that is unbecoming of your new nature, but not in a way that insults or defames the cross of Christ. So now three. The effect of seasonal rainfall. Verses 7 and 8 are a beautiful illustration of what was a very hard text. And I hope if there is any darkness in our understanding, I hope the lights come on in verses 7 and 8. So let's look. This illustration makes the matter a lot clearer. For land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is called, or for whose sake it's cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Okay. So it seems like there is a way for clarification of our identity, but it takes time. In fact, seasons. This picture of watered soil and harvest helps a lot. The Bible tells us that God provides rain for both the just and the unjust, right? Rain itself is a common grace. Illumination. The gospel message is in many places, not all, but in many places is a grace that is shared. To know about Christ. How is it that there can be such different effects in two recipients of the gracious gift of rain or the message of Christ? How is it there can be such a difference? What matters is not whether or not, what matters is not whether or not the rain falls upon the ground. God sends rain to both the just and unjust. What matters is the state of the soil that ultimately tells the story. 
Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 18 says, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. He also later tells a story about sowing seeds on soil. Dirt and rain will produce in one field a crop of fruitful harvest. But on the very next field, dirt and rain produce thorns. And what is worthless? What is the difference? In the Lord's parable on the sower and the soils, no difference could be seen immediately. But over time, friends, over time, there became a clear difference. What had been sprinkled on rocky ground, what was grown in good ground, it was only when the hardship of the rocky ground or the weeds or the birds came that the difference could be seen. It is hard to see the difference right now. Everyone in the room enjoying affirmation of our faith, delighting in the joyful worship of the King, submitting themselves to the teaching of the Word. But that wasn't the moment that exposed true identity. There was a much harder moment, right? For the Exodus generation, it was, there's giants in the land. We can go in and die, or we can go back to slavery. And in that moment, their identity was revealed. For Judas, it was the desire for a kingdom on earth made through all sorts of temporal might. Jesus is here. He can make food out of nothing. Surely he can get rid of these pesky Romans. And then we'll have our nation back. For the seed sown on the rocks, seed on hard ground. You knew what it was when the sun beat down on it. For the seed sown near the edge of the field where the weeds were, you knew what it was when the weeds choked it out. For the seed sown on the path where the birds came and ate it up, you knew what it truly was when it was hardest, when it was challenging. And that's the moment they're living in. You seem to have a foot in both camps. What will you do when one of the camps insists that you be all the way in? Well, you'll show your true identity. Truly regenerate, genuine believers can do terrible things, as Peter showed. Betrayed the Lord three times. A branch that is connected to Christ, the vine, will bear good fruit, and it cannot do otherwise. A branch that is not connected to Christ, the vine, simply lacks the power 
to bear lasting fruit. No matter how sincere their experiences have been in religion, ultimately only thorns and thistles are produced apart from Christ. And that's how this ends. Look at verse 8. The fruit of the field proves that one field is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. You can look at the fruit of the field and say, under this challenge, it's become obvious that your end is destruction. The good news of Christ is that he is a good shepherd. His sheep do know him. And he does not cast out the Peters who stumble and struggle like I do and maybe you do. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. He will bring justice to victory. So, this is a tough text. But how is it helpful for us? Like John the Baptist, preaching, the Messiah is coming. This text preaches to us. The Messiah is coming again. And what will he find? The writer of the book of Hebrews, like perhaps a good general in combat, insists that the people move forward. To stay where we are, especially if where we are is still in the elementary agreeable, sort of ecumenical, safe place of familiarity with the unbeliever. Like a good general, Hebrews says, you must advance. And the author says, let us grow beyond the doctrine of Christ that is just enough doctrine to be called Christian, but not so much doctrine that it's not also Judaism. What does this imply for us? What does this text mean as we stand to leave this place? First, it has to do with the nature of true saving faith in Jesus Christ. True saving <clears throat> faith in Jesus Christ must not be a verbal affirmation or a cordial head nod toward the necessity of Christ. It must not be. The true nature of saving faith must be radical, transformative, and Christ-pursuing. Mere knowledge of the gospel would not be enough. Understanding or even intellectually affirming Christian teaching is not sufficient for true salvation. Second, the test of our living faith is growing. To abide exclusively in infancy would be, in any other context, 
cause for real concern. I, I've got this dog, and we've had it for four years, and it still resembles a puppy that's three or four weeks old. Well, what would my advice be? Like, buy a lot of Febreze, because it's going to smell. Right? There's death there, because there's not growth. Surely that is how this passage fits into the context of the letter. Not only saying, don't go back, but saying to the people, go forward. And that would be my plea to you. Go forward. Forward is hard, isn't it? And not because it takes some great effort on your part. Christ is all in all. I'm not finishing the sermon by saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But going forward is hard because identities change. If I were to go on a long bike ride with some of my friends who ride bike, Gary and Jay and some Josh, say, hey, let's, let's go for a bike ride. All right. There's going to come a point in that bike ride where some identity differences are going to be uncomfortable. And it can be uncomfortable. I, I'm growing and there's distance. I've, I've tried growing together. I'm growing and there's criticism. Not because growing in Christ is hard. He's, he's the vine, you're the branches. He's producing fruit. But growing can be hard because it creates an identity distinction between what had been previously very comfortable and very familiar and very safe sometimes and now is foreign and challenging. But the plea to not go back is, by its very nature, a plea to go forward. And the consequence of not going forward is grave. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You're good in giving us the pleasant and delightful words of hope. You are good in giving us the fatherly and loving warnings. Our indifference is too closely connected to apostasy. Our complacency, our sitting seems to put us in a spot that makes our very identity questionable. But, Lord, all our hope is in Christ. In Him, there is new creation. He is making all things new. In Him, there is life godliness there's growth there's fruit so as we are found in Christ <clears throat> as we are equipped to walk in newness of life as we go forward led by your spirit we can identify that there will be challenges in growth challenges in distinction of identity but Lord, we rejoice in the life.
that produces growth. Cause our joy to be rooted in the growth, not in the familiarity of staying in the same place. And we'll praise you for the answered prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing, please.